Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Julie Holly. She's invested in single-family homes, house hacks, and multifamily properties, both passively and actively. Holly is also a podcast host and a high-performance coach. So thank you so much for being on the show, Julie. Oh, I am so grateful. I'm grateful for a great pre-conversation. And I'm just going to say it. I'm grateful for a restart. Don't we all need restarts every once in a while? And here in the middle of trying to record, I have all the stuff pinging up on my computer. So you're one of the most gracious podcast hosts ever. Thank you. Thank you. So Julie, give us a little background on yourself, both personally and professionally prior to being involved in real estate investing. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll, let's go personal first um, because that influenced my life in a really tremendous way. Um, I am one of four kids and I have three older brothers. It's a really interesting fact to know about somebody. I always say that explains a lot about like who I became in the world, right? I'm very adventurous and being the bottom of the pack, you know, it's like, oh, I was just used to being around the guys and wanting to do more of those extreme sports. That was cool back in the nineties, right? Extreme sports. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time like that. I'm just going to do a fast forward on that, how much that served me as I went into the multifamily space, because when I initially went into the space, it was, um, the number of women were significantly less than the number of men. And so just like having that comfort was like, and just being comfortable communicating with all people was just like, really, I think advantageous. So that's just like one of those things I usually don't share on podcasts. I think this is the only podcast I've ever actually spelled that out on, but it's a fun, it's a fun little personal fact to throw in there. But on the professional side, um, although I was raised in real estate, and that was what I was around. It was residential sales and it was a roller coaster. And I saw, oh my gosh, um, I think real estate's great. I love architectural digest and I'm 12 years old. However, I don't think I would ever want the lack of stabi financial stability in my life. My mom is a school teacher and, I, and I'm like, I love kids. I can contribute to the world. I'll have a stable income. And then guess what? I will um, have this pension at the end. However, what happens? You think I'm safe. I work for the government. I'm a school teacher. I'm not going to get laid off. Now I didn't get laid off, but they handed out pink slips. 
And I was just like, what, two people away from having a pink slip. And that sobered me up at the age of 25 really fast. At that moment, I realized someone else is actually in control of my future. And that someone isn't me. I'm spending my time and I'm investing my time in this career, but I actually, I could get laid off. Something could happen. And so I started realizing I need to have kind of what a lot of people will call plan B. And that's how I initially got into real estate investing. Awesome. So why did you choose uh, like real estate as your investment vehicle? There's so many other ways of, you know, uh, other businesses and other avenues to make money. Invest in what you know invest in what makes sense. Right. So even, even then I, because I was around real estate, I'll be at residential real estate. My dad taught me about appreciation. He had this analogy with an escalator and he's like, you know, you just, you buy here and it's like taking the escalator at the mall and it just goes up over time. And he had a lot of really fun analogies. And so he was, Although he wasn't himself investing in real estate, he was teaching me just the principles of owning real estate. And so that made a lot of sense to me. When I looked at Wall Street, it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me. I mean, I had, I had, you know, little bits in Wall Street by nature of how my job was structured and stuff um, and past 401ks and having a financial planner take care of those. But I didn't understand how it actually worked. And let's face it, I can say this because it's me. I'm a woman. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I was a teacher. I'm pretty sure I'm the most qualified control freak there is. (laughs) And so by, and you can laugh, everybody should be laughing at that because we all know that, that there are certain dispositions that want more control. And I realized like, I have no control over wall street. I don't get a say in the boardroom. I don't get to decide what gets sold. I get a piece of paper. I don't even, you don't even get a piece of paper anymore. Right. It's just a little number electronically. And I really like something that's tangible where I have a voice and I have influence. And so even as a passive investor, I was messaging earlier with, you know, one of the GP members on a passive investment, because I'm just curious about something taking place. It's fun. He knows I'm not barking up his tree to just like, I'm not being a cranky investor. I'm a curious investor. And, and so at least I have some level of I can talk to somebody who is a decision maker. Like I, I can't do that when I'm talking about Wall Street. And so that's really what led me into the whole, let me get into real estate as an investment vehicle. Oh, that's great. That's a fantastic journey. And what when you got in, what was kind of like your first real estate investment? What were you doing to, uh, to start? Well, the first investment was a single family home, and that was actually just intended to be my own personal residence. Um, It was absolutely disgusting. (laughs) The toilet was literally sinking into the subfloor and there was a mouse feces around the perimeter of the living room carpet. There were cobwebs in this beautiful sun. Well, turned out to be beautiful, but they're cobwebs stringing across it. It was this 1938 vintage home and, a, you know, like not a bad area, not the best area it was gentrifying. So I got to help gentrify that, um, one shop vac <laughs> stuck at a time. Right. But in that process, um, I was single. And so I learned 
didn't have a name. Brandon Turner coined it, right? Probably with house hacking. And next thing you know, you have, I'm like, I could rent out that other room. The house is gorgeous now. I can rent out the other room and offset my income because I'm a school teacher and I don't make a ton of money and I want to go have some fun. So that was that first awakening and that first aha of this is cool. I want to do more. Yeah. House hacking is a great way to get in. That's how I started as well. And mm. uh, with a three family, not a single family, but uh, it's it's definitely one of the best ways of getting involved in real estate investing. And okay. if you learning it to learning the business as well. Yeah. And you get to learn about being a landlord mm. in a different way. I mean, like you're still collecting funds. I would definitely, and I've spoken to a lot of new invest, like people breaking into investing. And that is the guidance I give. Like I guess I'm talking to one of the coolest young adults ever, just about ready to get married. And, and we're talking, you know, about what's the best investment path. And I just encourage him, like, Hey, what buy a small multi buy a small multifamily, the two of you. And we kind of laid out a plan because it's such a, a gentle way of getting in and it's something that you can build on and it's very strategic. Yeah. The other thing with it too, is that when you move out at some point, uh, you know, when I moved out into a single family house from house hack, it was just like, Oh, it's very easy. There's, you just mm -hmm. rent out one unit and mm -hmm. you're, that's it. You're all set. It's not like a huge thing of, I have to sell this. I have to do this. I have to do all this other work. And so that was very nice too. And you could, you know, and if you are like moving out in 2009, well, you, you don't have to sell it. You can just rent it out and then sell it hopefully in 2021. <laughs> but, that's, uh, <laughs> well, you know, part of that strategy, just for some people listening, depending on where you're at in life, I'm not a CPA, I'm not consulting you on taxes, but for some people that might be wanting you know, starting a family of some sorts, right? I mean, wh whatever your situation is, if you have a small, small multi that you own, that you manage, and somebody wants to stay at home with kids or watch TV, I don't know what it is, but if, as long as that person is managing that asset and that is their quote, full-time job, they can be the real estate professional. And now all of your passive passive income can now be used in so, or passive depreciation can be used yeah. in very different ways, very strategic. So, so there's a lot of stra um, strategy in, Hey, if I have a small multi in my portfolio, I'd never buy single family, <laughs> but yeah. again, right. But small multi is really strategic. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So you made the, you made the, the transition from residential investing to commercial multifamily and you know, what really fueled that decision when you made it? Okay. So that's a like slam dunk, no brainer, one door, one unit, and everything on a single family home hinges off of having one resident living in that house. All of your income can be wiped out by one single, not even a catastrophe, right? Oh my gosh, we've got to put a whole new fence up around the perimeter. That's expensive when you're thinking about the income generated off of a single family. Although you can have reserves and we had reserves, it just felt so vulnerable. I am yeah. like, I just, I want something that feels safer and is more predictable. And in that quest to find that I discovered apartment syndication and it was like, how did I not know about this? Hmm. I mean, seriously, I was just shocked. Like, how did I have to wait so long in life to even learn about this? There are lots of reasons why most people don't know about it, um, which we won't go into. Um, however, 
in the apartment syndication space, it just made so much sense. I'm like, great. Even if I have say an eight plex or a 10 plex, even then let's go with easy numbers, 10, I have one person move out. Well, I'm already factoring that vacancy, that little natural turnover. I'm already factoring that into everything that the business plan. So I really love the um, business plan and the stability and the structure of the apartment space. Um, so that really lured me in because I'm like, great, safe, stable, predictable. It has a historical pattern that we can look to, we can look at the trends and we can look at rent trends and we can look at market trends and we can invest in areas where I always say, and live where you want to live, invest where it makes sense. I'm not investing in my little tiny town of 2,500 on the Canadian border, but I'm investing in five other States because it makes S E N S E sense and C E N T S sense both ways. So that's my nutshell on that. <laughs> With uh, multifamily syndications, when you started getting into it and getting into larger stuff and you're raising money and all this kind of stuff, when you started in multifamily syndications, did you start as a passive investor or did you start as a general partner? I am a firm believer in beginning as a passive investor. Ooh, I might get some tomatoes thrown at me, you know, virtual ones and across the airwaves. But, you know, honestly... For me, Charles, that was a person. I have a, I have some very strong personal convictions on how I want to go about my investment journey. And I don't want to ask people to do things that I have not done or am not willing to do or don't have the capacity to do. And so um, beginning as a limited partner, knowing that my ultimate goal is my ultimate goal is to serve and support people in growing their portfolios, right? There, and so I need to know what that feels like. And if I haven't had that feeling of, golly, how well do I know these people? I mean, like I trust them, but I'm wiring all this money. How do I know that this is, isn't going to some offshore account, right? There are a lot of feelings that people go through when they are passive investing, even for the third or fourth or fifth time. And so I really believed that it was imperative that if I was going to receive those type of funds in the future, I need to have that experience beneath me. And I also really wanted to see, we invested with a very strong um, team. And so I knew that I could see, uh, have some good parameters. Oh, this is how people do this. Well, you know, this is, maybe a guideline or a standard that I can have of sorts versus trying to just figure it out on my own. Interesting. So tell us about your first deal as a general partner, when you actually made the leap, you're a passive investor, now you're a general partner. Um, I mean, what role did you kind of pick up? Like, what did you specialize in? What do you specialize in now when you're doing these deals? And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that deal. Yeah, no, that, that was a deal that it was a Christmas present, really. Um, <laughs> so I was able, you know, to join forces and link arms with the team and collaborating. I am very focused on investors. I know that a lot of people like to cloak cloak and dance around um, capital raising and they want to call themselves investor relations. But that really is my impetus. Um, if you go to the content I create, it is all very focused on educating, go figure, past teacher, uh, you know, educating people, supporting people. And really that is that investor relations side of things. So that's how I came into that, to like and in that general partnership, that was my role. Um, that is my role. It's 120 units in Des Moines, Iowa. It's a, 
it was just fantastic. Um, I mentioned to you off air, I'm very particular about partners and, and I have a rule. And again, that's, I told you, I have like some, I did a blog post on this recently, you know, it's like, I just have some different ways of going about things and they're not conventional. They're not really how people are doing it in the industry, but it's aligned with my philosophy. And that is, Hey, I'm going to know this person for at least a year before I partner with this person. I'm probably going to have collaborated on a podcast or creating some other type of content. I want to see how they respond. What's their communication style, you know, just really breaking bread, getting to know people is so imperative. So, um, so I love the partnership on that. It's just a fantastic partnership. It's even better that we're outperforming what we projected. So I'm like, that. that's always icing on the cake. But again, that goes with how are you selecting and choosing the people you're partnered with and knowing the philosophy and the alignment there. I'm an under-promise, over-deliver kind of person and as are they, so... That's great. It's a great match. So about that deal, tell us about some of the hurdles that you and your team had to overcome during it. Cause every deal has some, so what, how, what'd you guys have to do? And I imagine you had even more cause it was your first deal as a GP and I knew, I know how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And so in that one, we had, um, the biggest hurdle was some of the financing on it. We had, um, someone involved, and I, I'm going to be delicate with how I go about saying this, right? Discretion is key. It is a small space. And so we had a, we had um, some capital that was committed, a substantial amount of capital that was mm-hmm. committed to the deal. And the, there was a change of mind, a change of heart. And so somewhat last minute, there's a lot of scrambling and a lot of extensions as new alliances and new partner, you know, not partnerships, but okay. How do we fill in this substantial gap that we now have? And so honestly, that was a significant hurdle. Um, the person that ran point really in, like, I cannot take credit for building that bridge and filling in that gap, but the person that ultimately like put that together was, on the phone constantly relying upon the network, right? We all have our networks. We all have strong networks. Um, and those networks, they're really imperative when you find yourself in a situation like this. And ultimately we were able to close and that is such a fantastic deal, but it was very painful, particularly as we're trying to cross that finish line. And when you're facing extensions, right? That's not fun. (laughs) Like, no, we got to get this done. (laughs) Yeah, it's everybody has the hurdles in their first deal. I always like asking about it because seeing and it's a, it's a common it's a common theme. So, but um, how it goes? Can I can I add to that? I'm sorry, yeah. I feel like I'm cutting. I, I'm not feeling like I am cutting you off. I'm so embarrassed. Okay, so I, I will add to that is that because it was my first deal, and this is a, a caution I have to myself, right? And that caution is like you're expecting it to close. And in the single family space, which, you know, is people's most comfortable spot because they've probably already done single family, your close date is usually pretty much your close date. The close date on an apartment complex can be very different than the projected close date, depending on, there are so many different things that have to be aligned. And I did not understand that. I had already communicated to the investors, like, Oh, we're closing. It's going to end. I'll tell you what lesson learned approximations when it comes to close dates are the most important thing to do because 
managing those expectations is really critical. Yeah, Nobody got that's... mad at me, but I was frustrated <laughs> with myself. <laughs> yeah, especially if they're new investors and they don't know, mm -hmm. they don't understand the whole process because it's uh, it's it is much different than your single family. And there's a lot less things that you have to do or that are, let's say, that are happening with a single family residence or property versus a multifamily between all mm -hmm. the tenants, between lenders, between the whole nine yards. So it's it's uh, it's it's a daunting process. And, you know, you really have to have a team and a transaction coordinator there working with you, like in your team to kind of really push everything past the line. So. Yeah. But um, so we met about a year ago at a networking event and, you know, to do a deal as a general partner, no matter what your role is, I mean, it takes a lot of networking. So how do you effectively network, Julie? And, uh, you know, how do you find people, whether they're passive or general partners or just uh, out there finding people that you might be able to work with in the future? Going to events is really critical. If you are listening and you're not going to at least two events a year, you are missing out. Mm -hmm. And really um, that changes as you go to events. So I always set an attention anytime I go to an event, like what is it that I wanna contribute at this event and what is it that I want to build and grow while I'm here at this event? And having those clear intentions is really critical. And so sometimes it might be, okay, I, I'm not here to make, I went to an event, I went to Joe Fairless's best ever event, which is absolutely fantastic last February and, or earlier this year. And at that event, I actually had a specific intention of deepening relationships, of meeting some people that I've been connected with um, in person for the first time, setting aside time to actually have more meaningful, substantial conversations, which now I'm actually partnered with one of those people that I invested in, right? Like I took that time, we'd already you know, known each other for a long time, but now we've met in person. Now we've had time set aside where we could talk on a more substantial way. Um, also the social platforms is really critical. I don't think, like people want to say, oh, it's, so, it's superficial or what, but honestly, a lot of my very best relationships have begun over on LinkedIn, just through conversation, through looking at people, how are they showing up? I don't know. Maybe it's an assistant. Let me get to know that person. Let me have that phone call with them and, and see if um, their posts are matching that conversation. They're congruent. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Doing your due diligence prior on social media and uh, meeting people on social media. Social media is a great way of obviously being connected to people and then also following what people are doing. And then you kind of can go from there and see uh, who you want to work with. And people can really learn a lot about companies and people via that. So that's awesome. Uh, so one thing I was, when I was doing some research for this episode, there was a thing that you, you call it uh, the mindset behind success. So can mm. you kind of go into that a little bit more? and let our audience know what that is? Right. Well, you know, most of us have, I'm, I'm always, I will always quote a book because I have a book club. Right now we're reading Ed Milet's The Power of One More. If, um, yeah, that's a great book. All that to say, he has this great analogy and I'm going to share this and it's not mine. I'm good. I always give people credit. Notice I gave my, my partner credit on like filling in the gap. I will never take credit if it's not mine. Right. So he has this, this concept of like, we're always going to come down to whatever our thermostat is, right. Whatever our baseline is. And so that mindset for success really falls up hinges upon a similar principle, right. Is that 
if we can't visualize, if we can't see where we want to go as a person, we're always going to stay in the same position and everything. And so taking the time to invest in cultivating a a vision. Now, most people are hung up on why, oh, you got to know your why. Why do you have to know your why? What's the purpose of your why? So the questions like who, what, when, where, why, how, those questions should actually be beneath your vision. Your vision is like the overarching theme. And when we have clarity on our vision and what we want to cultivate in our lives, um, you know, in uh, the different facets of our life, right? Whatever we do, the answer to the why is going to be aligned to something bigger than that. And that will keep us going and just kind of keeping a cadence towards that, which will lead to a more, um, meaningful, like a more satisfied, more fulfilled life ultimately. Interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Do you use that with your high performance coaching? I do. Yeah. Everything is, everything is tied to vision. If we don't have Mm -hmm. a clarity surrounding our vision, then we will lack that motivation. There is no necessity to get anything done to take action because we don't really know why. And like, I'm sure everybody can relate to this. I'm sure you, you're going to love this. Like the moment, if we find that moment in our day where we're kind of stalling out and not maintaining that momentum, it means that we really more than likely don't know what, what we're doing or why we're doing it. Hmm. And so when we have clarity as to this is why I am this is why I'm on this podcast with you, or this is why I'm sending this email. And when we have that and it's aligned to our greater vision, we will maintain that momentum necessary. That's great. So Julie, as we're like wrapping up here, I had a couple, couple questions we ask all of our guests. And number one is what are common mistakes you see other real estate investors make or real estate investors in general? Could be you, could be other people. I would say I, I will give myself this one. Um, I haven't made this mistake and we've talked about it throughout this episode and that is partnering. I see a lot of people partnering and I will talk to people and be like, wow, we should consider partnering. If I meet you at an event, I might say that if I like you, it doesn't mean I'm partnering with you tomorrow. It means it starts a year long tab. Like, okay, great. Maybe in a year we can partner. Let's see if we stay in touch. Let's see how that goes. Right. I see a lot of people partnering, um, very quickly. And a lot of people and you and I touched on this earlier, is it, oh, well, initially, like I just got into the deal. We closed the deal. Okay. That's the easy part. Mm-hmm. Closing the deal. It seems really hard. That's the easy part. Now you've got to perform on that for the next X amount of years. You've got to show up every single day after that. So really, I see a lot of um, the partnership is really probably the biggest thing, but I'm going to throw a second item in there. And that is a lot of people staying in the single family space or staying in a space where they have full control because Mm. maybe like me, they are, they like that level of control but I like to give the control away and I like to delegate. And it's really, you can go further faster if you are collaborating with others, either as limited partners or amongst a general partnership. Interesting. What do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success over the years? Straight up dogged determination. No kidding. <laughs> right? No, I'm, I'm very flexible and adaptable. And I think that that has served me well you know, don't get hung up on something that has happened in the past. 
failure is not failure. Failure is just feedback that you are getting. It didn't work out. Okay. That's not the end of the world. You still have a lifetime ahead of you. So what are you doing with that feedback so that you can make a better decision in the future? So I think, you know, having a strong mindset is really critical. Um, a lot of times we spend time having a negative narrative and this dialogue because we are built that way as humans, we are more, um, fight or flight. That's, I mean, that's how we stay alive. And so if we can shift that and instead of feeding that part of our brain, but feeding our, not the, Oh, what if this goes wrong? Or, Oh my gosh, I totally messed up and going down a negative path. We could say, okay, well, what if this works out or, okay, that I totally screwed up, but how am I going to work on this in the future? Interesting. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your business, Julie? Oh, well, I love you. Ask. And I appreciate that. Um, go connect up. If you, if you like the mindset elements, go, go listen to the conscious investor podcast. Um, we have a mindset episode on Mondays and, um, someone fantastic. Charles will be on the podcast soon. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so anyhow, you know, and then you get to listen to professionals talking about their journeys and, um, even about their mindset. It's a very different take on, on investing because it is very much more the, the who and the vision component of it, which is a great, it's great to have role models like that. And then head to head to julieholly.com. If you want to schedule a time to talk. Great. Well, I will put links, uh, links to your social media and then also to your website in the show notes. And I want to thank you for coming on today and looking forward to, um, meeting up with you and connecting with you at uh, our next networking event. Awesome. Me too. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.